Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. Everything seemed to be going right for Jason Portnoy. While studying engineering at Stanford, his career took a sharp and unexpected turn when he met the CEO of a new startup, a company that became PayPal. He was soon offered a job and jumped onto the rocket ship and didn't look back. The years that followed led him to success after success, and Jason became a prominent figure in the high-flying worlds of tech and venture capital. The money and the opportunities were endless. In the meantime, Jason got married and he had his first child. He was living the dream. But not everything was as it seemed. In fact, Jason was living a secret double life, one that had started with online pornography and led to a dark world of lies, deceptions, extramarital affairs, envelopes full of money, and casual hookups. Eventually, the two worlds collided, causing Jason to rethink everything, where he was, how he got there, and where he was going. Jason has since turned his life completely around, largely influenced by his life coach. Jason learned that shame thrives in secrecy and that taking radical responsibility for one's life can really change everything, and that in very literal ways, the truth really does set us free. He's emerged with a new sense of spirituality and mission, and he finds himself on a quest to live a life full of love and service. Jason recently released a new memoir called Silicon Valley Porn Star, a deeply vulnerable and moving book. And in this episode, he joins us to tell the story. We're deeply grateful to Jason for his willingness to share what he's been through and what he's learned. The episode is being released jointly with Jody Moore from Better Than Happy and was co-hosted by Jody and Tim. Thanks so much as always for listening. And with that, we'll jump right into this conversation with Jason Portnoy. Jason, welcome. Thanks for joining us here on um, Faith Matters and Better Than Happy. And Tim, I'm happy to be uh, co-hosting this episode with you today. Yes. Um, let's begin. Thank We're going to tell your story as we go throughout the episode today, Jason. But why don't you give us just the, um, you know, cocktail party version of introduction of who you are, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. So, well, without wading into the story, I guess, um, my name's Jason Portnoy. I grew up in New Jersey, went to college in uh, Colorado and then in California. And then I went out to Silicon Valley, got out to Silicon Valley at the start of the first dot-com boom and had a career there in Silicon Valley. Got to work with some really amazing people and some really amazing companies. And then about 11 years ago, moved uh, to Utah and started working as a venture capitalist. And that's what I've been doing. Um, a few years ago, I through all that, I had a very interesting journey, which we'll get into. Uh, and a few years ago, I decided to write a book about that journey because I thought it could be helpful for people. And that's kind of, I think, what we're talking about today. Great. Yeah. Um, Jason, I think one of the most interesting things is that you had this, you had this amazing career uh, amazing journey that there's sort of this external version of Jason that is super successful and everything's thriving. But on the other side, as you sort of alluded to, there was, there was something else going on beneath the surface that was really different. Would you mind sort of introducing us to, to what was, what was going on there, which is the, really the topic of your book? Yeah, sure. So at some point when I was in college and I got my first laptop uh, with an internet connection, albeit a slow internet connection, I discovered online pornography. And 
started to look at porn. Uh, I felt like, you know, this is just what guys do. It was interesting, you know, exciting. And over the years, it kind of developed into definitely into a habit. Um, for me, it started to also go to the next stages, which were Craigslist hookups. And then there were escort websites. And all of this was happening while I was dating and then engaged and then getting married and then having our first child. So all of this was going on. You know, I had my career was, was going well. My family life was going well. Everything on the surface seemed like it was fine. But below the surface, all of this other stuff was happening. And um, that was kind of, that was challenging. Yeah, that, that, that was a great summary. And we're going to dive into some of the specifics here. But but um, I just want to say, I know Tim and I both feel um, really appreciative of your willingness to write this book, which is an amazing book, by the way. And we should just, the book is called, like you said, Silicon Valley Porn Star. And it is, I, I even for somebody who doesn't look at pornography or have that particular challenge, it's a, an amazing and vulnerable and really well-written um uh, description of your experience and and uh, so much I think that we all can relate to in terms of having our outward appearance appearance uh, versus what's happening internally mm. and just it, 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 how that affects relationships mm-hmm. um, and the way that you navigated that. So I just want to thank you for that and for your willingness to be here today and share the, about this vulnerable topic. Well, thank, um, thank, thanks for saying that, Jody. Sorry to interrupt, but I also want to say I think that some people fear that. Uh, I feel like sometimes I have to say there's nothing pornographic in the book. That's right. Um, it's a story about issues that I had that kind of surfaced, and and the name porn star comes from uh, the work that I was doing with a life coach at the time. It was kind of the nickname that we gave to this part of myself, and I had been working in Silicon Valley, and so. That's the that's what the the title means, but I just want people not to worry. There's nothing pornographic in the book. It's a it's just a good story. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Excellent. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, should we should we kind of dive in a little bit? I I think it's a little bit relevant to share just a few of the struggles that you experienced as a child. Um, some of the decisions that maybe especially your dad made and and we all experience trials as children, but I think um, my thought is that some of those, like not having a father around as much as you might've liked and things may have contributed to your struggle of figuring out your masculinity and and feeling that somewhat of a void. Would you mind speaking just a little bit to some of that? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of talked about you know, I, I found pornography when I was young and then it kind of escalated into real world hookups and things like that. And once I started working on that and going deeper into that with a life coach many years later and trying to understand like, what was driving that? What was I really seeking? Uh, it wasn't about the sex. It was about maybe connection or or looking for love or something. I needed something from the outside world. And why did I need that? And we kind of methodically started going back through my past and through my childhood and trying to identify if there were things that may have, you know, contributed to that. And certainly when we touched 
you know, the first time we touched the, the, my, my kind of memory of when my dad moved away, I just remember bawling in, in that session. And I had been carrying that around. I was in my mid thirties by then. And I had been carrying that around for, I don't know, you know, 30 years almost. How old and were you when your dad moved away? Five or six. Yeah. And so that was really fascinating. It was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that was even buried in there. What else is buried in there? And that kind of, um, you know, it was a multi-year process of, of, because you also, you can't just get there in your head. You can't just think your way into, well, what was the experience and how did it affect me? And it's, it doesn't kind of work analytically like that, at least in my experience. It's more about getting yourself into a place where you can start to feel those feelings again and feel those emotions again. And so then there was other moments later in my coaching where I realized uh, my mother, when I was in a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade ish, um, got into a really bad depression and she was either heavily medicated or would go away to hospitals. And, and so, and if she was home and she was medicated, she kind of was there, but not quite there. And so she became kind of emotionally very distant and those were, again, very formative years in my childhood, kind of middle school, early high school. And my mom kind of left during those years. And that also really affected me. And, but again, not something I really understood until later uh, when, you know, I'm kind of going through life. Uh, playing off of some script that I have in my head and I start bumping up against the limitations of that script and then starting to ask the questions, Hey, why, why is yeah. that happening? And I want to ask a little, just to clarify a little bit on that, because, because you said that potentially part of this is not about the sex, but it's seeking for love and connection. But, but earlier you, you also mentioned that as all of this was going on, you were engaged and then you're married and then you had a, you had a child. And so there's kind of a potentially a, you know, superficially a conflict there. It's saying, well, he's got all this love and connection in his family, but there's still this, this unmet need. So what have you discovered about what was really going on? And has there been additional love and connection that you've needed in order to, you know, replace the unwanted pornography use? And, and that is a, such a great question, Tim. Um, I feel like, Yes, I did have a very loving wife and, you know, girlfriend, then fiance, then wife. I think that what I learned through my journey, because it wasn't just, you know, the porn stuff and the sex stuff for me, it was also kind of money and cars. And I talk about this in the book that I thought if I had money, fancy cars and women, I would be happy. And what I learned was that it, I could have never had enough of any of those things that the, so it didn't matter if I had a loving wife, I still would have gone out looking for love, you know, in the wrong places, I guess. Um, and no matter how many of those encounters I would have had, it would have never been enough. Partly because I was trying to use things from the outside world to fill something inside of myself, which just doesn't work. But Second, the second order effect is that every time I engaged in those things, 
I felt guilty and I felt ashamed and I felt embarrassed. And eventually I felt out of control. And to cover up those feelings and avoid feeling them or distract myself from them, I just did more of that thing. And that's that's when at the very end, when I kind of hit my rock bottom moment is when it really turned into an addiction where I was just out of control and couldn't stop. And, you know, that's kind of the journey that I take the reader through in the book too. I love that question too, Tim. And I, I just want to ask you kind of a follow-up, um, Jason, of it almost sounds like what you were really seeking, because we do often say we want to feel love and connection, right? Um, and we think that comes from someone else. If I have a girlfriend or a wife or a husband or whatever, then I'm going to feel loved, right? Yep. But um, one of the things I always teach is that we don't feel other people's love. We Love is an emotion we feel in our body. And if I choose to think, oh, she loves me, he loves me, I must be lovable, I must be okay, I must mm-hmm. not be as as bad or damaged or broken as I tend to think of myself, then we feel that. And so to your point, there was no amount of money or success or women or anything that could fill that void. There's not even, I don't think, an amount of other people loving you that can fill that void within us unless you choose to believe it's true. I must be all right. I'm good That's enough. Right. right? That's right. Was, yeah. 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 And And later in my journey and the coaching and I read lots of books, I watched movies, I kind of did everything I could to try to work on myself and climb my mountain and heal, etc. But this concept of shame became an important part of that journey as well. I remember the first time I watched a Brene Brown YouTube video about shame and all these alarm bells were going off in my head like, yes, that's me, that's my life. Um, And if a child is I feel like this isn't as controversial today to say as it may have been in the past, but like if a child is abandoned and I don't know that I was abandoned, I want to be really clear. I don't think I was quite abandoned, but like my dad moved far away and I didn't see him much. Um, and my mom went into her depression, like to a child that feels like abandonment, mm-hmm. even though um, in their brain and intellectually that it might not they can rationalize it, but the emotion and the feeling and the core of the shame feeling, again, I'm learning a lot of things I learned from Brene Brown, um, is that I, I'm, I don't deserve love. You know, I'm not worthy of being loved. And so Jody, you're exactly right. So here I am looking for love everywhere, but I was never going to find it because fundamentally I didn't believe that I actually deserve to be loved. And so then, if I may continue, um, I, I feel like I had to get to a place where I loved myself. And that was very hard because I had to accept all of the things that I had done that I felt very ashamed of and very embarrassed by and very guilty about. And I had to be honest about those things. And I had to forgive myself. And that was a really difficult process. I want to I want to ask you more about guilt and and shame specifically, and I love Brene Brown's way of thinking about that. I think it's super healthy and and helpful. Um, I, and we had mentioned earlier that many of our listeners, both on Faith Matters and Better Than Happier, are Latter Day Saints. And within our faith tradition, 
there is a very strong sort of ongoing injunction against against pornography use, which I think in a lot of ways is is very help is very helpful, and and positive. Um, but it also, and I don't need you to answer this question in any way in like a Latter Day Saint context. Well, I, just I will want- just interject. I agree with that. I think after everything I've been through and everything I've learned, I think porn is bad. I yeah. think it is. We are exploiting these men and women, mostly women, um, who are engaged in, in that. And, um, I don't think it's healthy for us at all as humans. Uh, are any other, any other problems you see? Is it just the exploitation or what other problems do you see with, with, well, that's the one, the two biggest ones that I always highlight are number one, the exploitation, which disproportionately affects women. Um, and number two, most men who are mostly the consumers of porn, are lying about their porn consumption. Yeah. So they're they're not they're looking at porn and they're probably lying about it. And okay. if you're doing that, you're not in your integrity and that's when everything starts to break down. Yeah. When you so let's let's dive back and I, I would love to sort of like look at the evolution of those feelings that you had when you first when you first started consuming pornography, was there something inherent in you that brought in feelings of guilt and shame or was it just interesting and you were curious and then it was sort of the the later misalignment with what you felt were your growing values of family and love and connection that brought on those feelings of, of guilt. Another sure. amazing question. I, I feel like it was from the very first minute. I, and I, I actually write the scene in the book. I, I've, I kind of stumble into some porn. I, it's a long time ago and I don't remember exact details, but I, I find myself looking at porn. And one of the first things I do is turn around to make sure that the door to my bedroom is closed and locked so that one of my roommates doesn't come in. So immediately I knew or, or felt or somehow had a sense I shouldn't be doing this or whether I should have or not, I just had that feeling. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's so fascinating because having not been raised yourself, like the way Tim and I were, where we were taught, Hey, stay away from porn. Right. Um, that I, I I'm fascinated by that innate part of us, you know, in, within our faith tradition, we call it the light of Christ or, or, you know, the spirit and some people call it intuition or the universe or whatever you want to call it. I do think there's like a, a compass within us, right. That w- sometimes gets misinformed by our habits and things, but that does speak to us about what serves us ultimately in the end. And I'm I'm curious too, and I know you've you've like you said, you've studied and you've done so much work on yourself, your mind, your heart, your relationship. So has Anne Marie, your wife, which we should talk about mm. in a moment. But uh-huh. do you consider yourself a spiritual person today? And if so, what does that look like? And and what what kind of spirituality because when I read your book, I've it sounded very spiritual to me, the way you live your life today. Yes, I do. We do consider ourselves a very spiritual family. We don't have any specific religious affiliations. Um, I was raised in a Catholic household. Um, well, interestingly, my mother, my biological mother was Catholic and my biological father was Jewish. And I was raised in a Catholic household. As I got older and I started to get closer to my dad, probably like college and post-college, I started to learn much more about his side of the family and his tradition. And so we've been, we have two kids, uh, uh, one 13, one six, and we've been trying to raise them in a house that is kind of spiritual 
and appreciates all of the different religions. So we talk about we talk about all of it at home so that the kids, you know, feel well informed and respect that there are different religions, people have different beliefs, but at the end of the day in our in our opinion, they're all pointing to the same place um or to a very similar place. And so yes, it has become very spiritual. And we talk a lot about dark and light in our house. So um and I would talk about pornography for me was a portal into the dark. And it you know, it started to take hold of me and pull me in and I feel like that's kind of what the dark does. It it tries to pull you away from the light, whatever that light is to you. Like you said, Jody, you can call it whatever you want. But I we do believe that there is this dichotomy, and it's much better to stay in the light. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's really beautiful, and it, it resonates really strongly with me because part of my spiritual journey has been going through what we might call faith crisis, where you sort of have this you have this very specific belief system, right? And then for whatever reason, it, it breaks down over the course of time. A lot of people refer to this as, as deconstruction. And in my, like, mo- my deepest moments of deconstruction were like, I don't know anything, like none of my previous beliefs are working for me. What, what started specifically for me a period of reconstruction was that exact same concept where it became clear to me that no matter how uh, you know, rational I wanted to get with like, trying to be right about my beliefs, it, it remained clear to me that there was always a right and wrong. There was mm-hmm. always good and evil. There was always light and dark. And mm-hmm. that actually was the first step for me on, on, in reconstructing some sort of a spirituality. Yes. And I, and I feel like this is part of the entire point of us being on this planet Earth, going through this earthly experience. Our soul is trying, is continually trying to move toward the light. If you look at you know, consciousness over the longest time span, right? Before, you know, the universe didn't exist. There's maybe this is a big bang, whatever we want to call it. Then there's earth. Then there's like, you know, um, you know, uh, amino acids. Then there's single celled life. Then there's multi-celled life Then you know, and then there's us and then there's sentience and then there's consciousness. And now we're, we're trying to elevate our consciousness. We are trying to move the, the, the grand plan is moving towards higher consciousness, which I translate as like more light, you know, and, and that's kind of the whole point for all of us to be here. And so our souls get there in different ways. You know, my soul had to go through this experience of the porn and the sex stuff and healing traumas, et cetera, et cetera. For me to get to that place, your journey would have been different everyone's journey is a little bit different, but at the end of the day, I think we're all striving for the same thing. Um, someone used this analogy from, to me once about a year ago and I, I love, it's so simple. I love it. Like she basically said, we're all like plants. We all, we all just want to bend towards the light. That's kind of like this subtle pressure that's constantly inside of us is to bend us in that direction. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. Um, I, I think our listeners probably have a whole bunch of questions because Tim and I both read your book and know your story, but I just want to make sure we fill in some of the gaps. Highly sure. recommend yeah. reading the book, but um, it's a fast read too. It is. It is. Yeah. Um, so your wife, Anne Marie, 
who, um, like you mentioned, was your girlfriend when this, when your, your porn habit first started and you were with her throughout this journey. Um, she didn't know about this when you, the two of you were married. Is that correct? If I'm getting some of the facts wrong, just no, no, it's okay. Yeah. Um, and so at some point though, um, it became apparent to you that, that this was your marriage wasn't going to continue the way you wanted if you didn't. Yeah. You know, and, start. and Jody, if you want, I can jump in and kind of roll. Please do. Roll yeah. Walk us through yeah, yeah, that yeah. part. Yeah. So I, I'm having this career in Silicon Valley. Um, I'm making lots of money. Um, I have these great titles. I buy a fancy car. It, and on, let me again, interrupt on, you real quick. Silicon Valley, you were really um, one of the key founders. I don't know if founders is the right word, but key players in starting PayPal. Is that correct? Yes, I was not a founder technically. Uh, not but a I founder. Was an sorry, employee number thirty-four, which compared <laughs> to the size of the company today, feels like a founder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, I just want to throw that in. No, that's okay. Well, and I and people like to hear these stories too. I got to work yeah. very closely with Peter Thiel, with Elon Musk, with Reed Hoffman, who went on to start LinkedIn, with uh, Stephen Chad, who started YouTube, with Jeremy, who started Yelp. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the list just goes on. It was a really fascinating time to be in Silicon Valley. And I got to work with some really amazing people and learn from them. Um, So all of this, again, like you're just making this point, like on the surface, it's like amazing. This looks amazing. Um, But under the surface, I am essentially cheating um, repeatedly, habitually, chronically, compulsively, whatever word you want to use. Like I can't seem to stop cheating on my girlfriend, who then becomes my fiance, who then becomes my wife. And at some point, about four or five years after we were married, we have our first daughter. And I'm I'm just in a downward spiral. Like I at that point I started to realize like I I have a problem. I, I didn't know what to do about it. It was like I have a problem. And so I quit my job. And because I felt like it was either stay at the company or get divorced. And I really wanted to try to make things work. Um, I didn't tell my wife, Anne-Marie, about anything I had been doing. About six months after I quit my job, we still weren't making progress getting back together. There, We had some therapists in the mix that were helping us, et cetera. And I found out that she had been having an affair. And, and it had been going on for a year. I've been going on for a long time. And that was crazy, uh, devastating. Um, I I found this life coach, and I go. Wait, the, can I interrupt you for yes, just a minute? Yeah, can, yeah. Do you mind if I read this one paragraph? Because yeah, please. I please. Was, when I read this, of course, as a life coach, um, <laughs> I was like, I'm just. Everyone needs to hear this. Okay. So this is the point at which you you your this life coach is recommended to you by somebody. By my assistant, my executive assistant, assistant at the office, because she is working closely with me and can tell that I am not well. Like she can tell that I'm just in some downward spiral. And she's one day she's like, are you okay? <laughs> like, And did she say to okay. you, you should go see this life coach? Or did she just say, I know somebody that you should talk? What did you think you were walking into? Well, she says, I know this woman who helps people in times of crisis or transition and maybe you should talk to her. She's not for everyone. 
Um, She's a little kind of out there, but maybe you should talk to her. And at that point I was like, sure, why not? I'll try Like, Let's try anything. I'll try anything. Yeah. Okay. So this is what you wrote in the book here. It says, you you walk in this building. It says the door at the other side of the room bursts open and a woman emerges. Oh, hi. You must be Jason. Yes. Hi. I'm awkward and very unsure of myself. I'm Melissa. She extends her hand. She's bright and animated and behind her, a beam of sunlight streams out of her office into the quiet waiting, waiting room. Come on. She gestures to me to come into the room. I follow her direction and she closes the door behind us. From that moment forward, my life will never be the same. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. say more about say, well, well. What okay, Melissa so then the next you. paragraph or chapter, whatever yes. I forget exactly how it starts next in the book. Um, we won't read it in detail, but basically, she's like, "So, you know, Julie introduced us. Um, how can I help you?" I'm like, "Well, you know, I just found out my wife's been having an affair, and you know, I just kind of start in with like, I'm a victim." All of these things are happening to me. I don't know why. And I'm waiting for her sympathy because I've been telling this story to my parents, my friends, everyone. And everyone's like, oh, you poor thing, you know, all of that stuff. And I'm eating it up. And this woman is just looking at me like not giving me any of that sympathy. And then eventually saying, feels like you're a victim right now. You know, and I was like, yes, I, I am. You know? <laughs> um, yes, you got it. <laughs> you got it. Yeah, that's right. Yes, you're right. You're good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it turns out she's like, yeah, no, like essentially I'll paraphrase. She's like, you yeah, know, I'm not going to let you get away with that. Like you have created the circumstances in your life. You may have created them again. I'm paraphrasing and collapsing a few years of things and and now at this point um, saying you have created the conditions for these things to happen in your life. You may have created them consciously. And of course, I'm like, no, I didn't. Why did I? Why would I create that for myself? Like, okay, then you created them subconsciously. And there are things working under the surface that you don't really understand. I don't understand them either, but my job is to help you understand them. And so we're going to go deeper and deeper and deeper, like into that subconscious, into the feelings. And we're going to start unpacking all of this stuff. And that takes us back to where we started earlier in the conversation, you know? Yeah. And I actually want to ask Jody at this point, if that's what you feel like where it would have gone in a conversation with you, because I know that one of your core messages um, is one of sort of, I, I might even call it radical responsibility. And that seems to be very clear where, where Melissa went. So yes. what I'm, I, so Jody, what's, what's going on in your mind? When yeah. You're this? I is mean, that where you would have taken I, so I, I want to just say that the way I coach is about, it, it sounds pretty aligned with the way you've been coached, Jason, in terms of, like Tim said, giving people responsibility for the outcomes of their lives. Mm. Not, but there's a difference between giving someone responsibility and blaming someone. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it, it sounded like the way you wrote that story that that you, it, it, maybe it isn't exactly what you expected to hear or wanted to hear, but you moved into an, imp- we're, we're trying to empower people, right? Yes. 
So if, if other people, if my spouse or my child or whatever, or the, the government or whoever is the reason that I'm struggling, then I have to try to control those people or these, these um, agencies in order to not struggle. So when we say to someone, no, you're creating your own struggle, I always follow it up with, isn't that the best news ever? Because yes. we can work on you. You can choose to change you. You may not be able to control your wife or or anybody else. And so, right. but I do want to say that um, sometimes even, even this, um, you know, this particular thought of like, you're not a victim here is mm-hmm. one that um, I take it on a case by case basis. It's not to say that no one should ever say I've been victimized. There right. are times and situations when it might serve you to recognize I've been victimized here. Yep. And, and that thought I'm a victim here might be the very thought necessary to move you into a better situation to an empowered other times feeling it's a right. completely disempowering thought. Yes. And so it is case specific, but yes. yes, I'm a big fan of, of, I love everything in my, all my problems to be my fault because yeah. then I feel empowered. Yeah. So, yeah, that's right. And, and yes, I feel like her message was, you have created the circumstances in your life for these things to happen. Um, you shouldn't beat yourself up over that. Um, but we should try to understand that so that you, and you have agency, you know, and I left that first meeting and I, I talk about this in the book. I left that first meeting feeling hope, which is a feeling I hadn't felt for many, many months or maybe longer by that point. And so, yes, I would say this kind of concept of radical personal responsibility was a big part of that work. And, um, yeah. And Jason, let let me ask you too, just before you meet Melissa in the book was actually one of the weirdest, if I could say that parts of the book for me, because there's this like, there's this dynamic where you, you do feel like a victim and you feel so betrayed by what Anne Marie had done. But, you know, obviously in the meantime, there was some, there was something going on your end, which I think from an external perspective, it's like potentially far more, far more severe, you know? And so like, how did you, how did you get into a headspace where, where you really did feel like the victim and still not even. I guess I'm just being transparent here, not feel like that you needed to confess what, you know, what you had done at that. At that point. Yes. Wow. Tim, you're just like <laughs> crushing me here with these questions. <laughs> uh, really good. good. Um, I ask myself that question sometimes still like, how did I rationalize all of that? Then the closest I've been able to get to is when I was kind of in the bad behavior, um, I had the, the part of my rationalization was this is what a successful man does. I am entitled to get the things that I want. And so, you know, one detail that it's in the book, but we haven't talked about yet was that, you know, post marriage, there was a disparity in the amount of sex that I wanted versus that Anne Marie wanted in our relationship. And so if she didn't want to have sex, I felt like an entitled man. I should be able to go get sex if that's what I want and need. And that's that's how I was justifying that for a lot of the time. And then how did I justify like not sharing my secrets? Oh, and and just to interject for a second, the secrets thing. If I had to pick like the two pillars of Melissa's thing, and Jody, I know you agree with all this stuff as well. It's the deep levels of personal responsibility and sharing your secrets. 
because keeping those secrets inside, it's caustic. It makes you sick. You do things to cover up that those feelings, et cetera. But um, I didn't understand that back then. And I felt like, well, I don't have to share these things. I can, you know, I don't have to share what I've done. I can just kind of play the victim and we'll let this thing play out. And then this is great because I get to kind of wipe the slate clean and start fresh without ever having to admit to all the bad things I did. And actually, maybe this is a good time to keep rolling forward a little bit because mm -hmm. that's... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that like, that's the next leg of the story, which was we go through this period of, you know, she had been having an affair... She didn't want to end that relationship. I, she moved out. Uh, we both are getting coached by this life coach, Melissa, sometimes together, sometimes separately. Um, we've given her permission to share our sessions with each other, if it's helpful. And we're apart for a while, a year, maybe a year and a half. But we have our daughter who we're sharing time with. And that keeps us together to some degree where we have to do handoffs and coordinate schedule and then gradually we start sharing things that we're talking to Melissa about or insights we might be having about our life. And eventually, gradually, we do wind up getting back together. Again, I think it takes about a year and a half. And me meanwhile, I still haven't shared my secrets. I'm still keeping that stuff inside. And so we kind of are starting over, but I haven't done anything to really resolve what was inside of me. And I haven't told Melissa either. Um, so I still am keeping these secrets and secrets will keep you sick. Eventually, I don't remember exactly how long, a year, two years, whatever, I start in with the bad behavior again. And then there's the guilt and then there's the shame and then I get caught. And then getting caught is like doubly devastating for Anne-Marie because not only do I admit that these things have been happening all along, for a decade, which is really horrible if you pause to think about that. Um, but I, I also have to acknowledge that even in that moment where we thought we were coming back together, starting fresh, had learned so much, shared our secrets, I still had held back. And she really felt at that point, like, I don't even know who you are. I just, at this, you know, and, and frankly, I didn't either. And that was a really scary time. Uh, I write about that in the book. One of the things you mentioned, Brene Brown earlier, one of the things she teaches that I, I think is really helpful. And, and again, even for someone, all of us have, I think, probably opportunity to be more honest and more more vulnerable, especially in our marriages, more open and more, and, and more connecting. But mm -hmm. Brene Brown teaches that um, shame grows in hiding. Like if you want to grow shame, put it in a petri dish and keep it secret. Yeah. And that's what causes it to grow. And when we look at any of these bad habits whether it's a pornography, a sex addiction or or just a an overeating, over facebooking, whatever these things right. that we're like I should probably cut back on that. I don't think right. that's good for me. Um it's fueled by it comes from us trying to escape feeling bad. Right? Mm -hmm. I I'm just not I'm feeling bored or I'm feeling bad about myself or I'm feeling stuck. I want to get away from that. I'll just get onto Instagram for a little while, or I'll just go mm -hmm. eat a cookie or I'll look at pornography or it, it, in part, that's a portion of it. Mm -hmm. And so when we keep it a secret 
and that shame grows, it only fuels more the compulsion to -hmm. participate in these activities. And so partly, I mean, there's, there's so much to this idea of, of being more vulnerable and more honest, but Mm -hmm. a part of it is that the way to truly heal, not just repress those, those, um, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for urges Mm -hmm. for a year and a half, like you did, which is challenging, but to actually heal as much as possible in that way requires vulnerability. And, And when you share it out loud with someone, and I would imagine that Melissa was probably, I, I, well, I know she's a key part of this, right? When you can share it with a neutral person and it, it would make sense that Anne-Marie couldn't serve as that neutral person for you. Correct. She's going to be hurt. But when your life coach or a therapist or a, 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 you know, a church leader, whoever it is, doesn't react with disgust or shock or whatever, it yes. pops that shame bubble. Or judgment. Yes. Or judgment. Right. Yes. Um, I had an experience it, where I went to a therapist and and had some things in my life I needed to change. And I, ex- I told him everything and I expected him to go, whoa, this is serious. I don't know how we're getting out of this. <laughs> oh, and boy. he said, I don't think this is a big deal. And I will never uh... forget that feeling as soon as he just listened to me and watched me cry for an hour and didn't say much at all. And then he just said, I don't think this is a big deal. And that was such a gift to me. Wow. So anyway. No, that's a great story. And I I really resonate with that too, Jody. And there's a there's a part in the book, Jason, where you say that Melissa would always repeat to you, the truth the truth speeds things up and the truth will set you free. And nothing has ever made that sort of that um little piece of wisdom scripture resonate with me more than reading your book because it there is almost this like arc of tension that just builds and builds and builds as the secrets as the secrets pile up and the dissonance between what you're projecting and where you're actually at yes. becomes more and more. And so I, I would love for you to actually maybe talk about that moment where Anne-Marie finds out, and obviously it wasn't fully your, your decision there, but was there, was there some sense of relief, even in that really, really difficult moment, you know, when, when you were finally confronted with the revealing of your, of your secret? Yes. you know, the relief, it was partly, it was tears, right? I was crying and I was just like releasing all of this emotion that I had been carrying. And what I think what we tend not to realize is how much work and effort it takes to hold all of that stuff in. And it's not just shame and guilt. There's other emotions. There's other things we do the busyness we all get ourselves into, et cetera, et cetera. I think we underestimate how difficult it is. It's like you're, it's like you're building a dam to keep it all in. And then the more that's in there, the stronger the dam has to be. And that dam represents like the emotional and psychological energy that it requires from you on a, on a minute by minute basis to keep that dam up. And as soon as I let the dam break, it was this huge relief and it was very scary. You know, I, I, I kind of use the analogy also of like falling. It was like the dam broke or the ground opened up underneath me and I started falling. And that was a very, very scary thing. Um, until eventually 
now again, I'm collapsing some months of, of coaching work, but like eventually understanding that this sense, what feels like falling, it's, it's like, I'm trying to get, not to get too weird here, but if you're like, if you're falling in outer space, you're not really falling, you're floating. And that this state of floating is actually our natural state. Um, we create all of these structures to, you know, feel safe. Um, but they're really like artificially constructed structures um, because our natural state is floating. And um, so, yes. And so I, the dam broke. It was a huge release, relief. It was very scary. I was falling, falling, falling. And the thing that caught me was a 12-step program. And we haven't really talked about that yet, but this was the moment that Melissa says, you know, maybe you should try a 12-step program. And, and that I, was designed for sex addiction? Yes, yes. Okay. So, I, well, I, I didn't even know that that existed at the time. So I just went on to Google that night and searched for a 12-step program for sex addiction. And boom, you know, up pops. I think there are a couple different ones, but the one that I saw first was Sexaholics Anonymous. And I clicked the link and I started reading the website. And it was like, you know, we admitted that our lives had become unmanageable. And I was like, yes, that's me. We, we admit, you know, we had tried to stop, but couldn't. Yes, that's me. We were, we felt ashamed and out of control, blah, blah, blah. I mean, everything I read, it was like, that's me, that's me, that's me. Oh my gosh, how did this happen? All the stuff's going through my head. And, um, and then the first thing, the next thing Melissa has me do is to write everything down, write down every instance. And so Jody, to your point about having a place to share your secrets, it can even be on a piece of paper with yourself yeah. if you're not ready yet, you know, to even share it with a therapist or a coach. Even that step, I think, can start the healing. Um, and so that was the next thing I did was just wrote everything down. I'm curious, Tim, your thoughts on this, because in our faith tradition, part of our repentance process is um, to, when appropriate, to share what's going on with a, a church leader, right? It's sort of a confession, but I'm curious if if maybe... What do you think, Tim, if a portion of that isn't like you need to go confess, like report what you've done, turn yourself in so much as it's for us, like you need to get this out and, and let the shame start to diffuse itself. You know, I, I actually totally agree with that. And I, I may even see, yeah, the purpose of confession a little bit in a, in a little bit different way than, um, than a lot of you know, members of our, of our faith. We recently went and visited in downtown Salt Lake City, uh, a man named Joseph Granny, who has started, um, who started an organization called the Other Side Academy, where he takes people who have dealt with chronic homelessness, drug use, criminality, um, and offers them essentially what is a school, a multi-year school where they can come free, free of no tuition, room and board is provided, um, and the only condition is that they want to they want to change. And what they mm. what they have there is a system of 
sort of radical vulnerability and uh, and confession. But they're not confessing to when they do something wrong, when they slip up, when they and obviously in this in a place like this, there's obviously no sex allowed. It's like very, they live a very very strict and high high standard of of morality. Mm-hmm. And um, when they slip up, when they you know if somebody steals something or if they're even if they're flirting too much with someone or just like they're violating any of the code of conduct of, of the other side, then they, then they talk about it and they're called out on it. Actually, they, every week they gather in a group where they sit in a circle. It's not across a desk. It's in a circle. And they talk about, they, they will call each other out very transparently, but kindly, and they will hash things out among amongst themselves. And they will also, they will also confess anything that they've done wrong and get the support of the community um, involved. And there, to me, that that's such a healthy dynamic where they're like, the truth really does set all of them free mm-hmm. um, in the sense that there are no <clears throat> secrets. There are, so there are no walls like you've talked about Jason, but there's also, there's this, when you are vulnerable, I think there's something in other people that makes them want to, makes them want to help us. And well, that's so what I, builds connection. Yes. You know, that's what builds connection. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so in this in this particular setting, j- sharing what can be very shame-filled things with a community, you not only do you have one person there to help you like we often have in our in our sort of confession uh system, but you have a whole community of people who are, yeah. who are supporting you. So I, I think that's a really Well, well that's idea. I mean, it, what that brings to mind is my experience in the 12-step program. You know, I went into a room full of people who I didn't know and I started, you know, you can call it confessing you can call it sharing. You can call it whatever you want, really. But I basically just started telling my secrets and how I felt about my secrets and how scared I was and how embarrassed I was or how ashamed I was. And then I listened to the next person do the same thing. And then I listened to the next person do the same thing. And then I heard people who had been in the program for a long time and who had kind of climbed out of the really darkest spots and were in a better place. And that was inspiring. And then I heard people who were in even darker places, um, scarier places than I was or had been. And that was also inspiring in a way that like, in in the sense of like, if I'm not careful, I can keep getting pulled in deeper. This, this, This doesn't have to be my, you know, low point, it could be worse. Yeah. Um, also, that was interesting too. You also talked about how once you got into the 12 step, you started counting your, your days of sobriety, meaning, yes. you know, not consuming porn, not, you know, having sex outside of your marriage. Yes. Like that. Um, and it was interesting because you, you got really attached in the book, you say to the, to the number of days that you, that yes. you were sober. Um, and you'd feel this euphoria when you went for a, for a new record, yes. but then you'd come crashing down yes. when you, when something, when you slipped up and I'm, I'm thinking about, cause I know that there are people listening to this that struggle with unwanted pornography use or, yeah. or potentially even sex addiction. <clears throat> and I'm guessing that that feeling of like, I'm, I'm doing it, I'm making it, I'm never going to, I'm never going to slip up again. And then slipping up and crashing and feeling those huge waves oh, yes. of shame and guilt. I, I'm, I know that there are people listening. That's, Let's talk that's about their this. Reality. So Let's, can you talk? Yeah. And talk yes, to yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I feel like, um, I, I would attach, I did attach a lot of importance to my number, you know, as I talk about it in the book and going back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, you know, the dam breaks, I'm falling. I am, emotionally raw 
like a wound, like this huge wound has been ripped open. I am raw and I am very emotionally volatile. So yes, when I, when I make it through a day or two or three or four days or whatever without porn or masturbation, I, I'm elated and it feels like this is amazing. I can start a new life. And it's like, I project an entire life ahead of me of what I am now deeming success. And I get this like euphoria almost. And then a day or two later, if I, um, you know, if I slip up or whatever you want to call it, act out, um, it, all of that future projection would come crashing down and I would start projecting the opposite. I'll never change. I'll never get out of this. And it turned out that, you know, I was just going from plus 10 to minus 10, you know, and it was really tough and probably, and, and, and at one point I, when I was in one of those minus 10 moments on a scale of plus 10 to minus 10, so I was at the bottom. Um, and I called one of my sponsors and I said, like, I, I need more help. Like I, I'm doing, I, I'm doing the steps. I, I think I'm doing this right, but man, I'm struggling. And he was like, don't put so much focus on the number. Don't worry so much about the future. Just worry about today. And anytime your mind starts drifting into next week or next month or next year, pull it back to today. And I had heard these messages before. I had read The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. That, I mean, and that book changed my life. But We hear these things over and over and over again. We hear, you know, the truth will set you free all the time, but we still, we don't like take it seriously or we just need reminders, you know? And so he reminded me like, stay present and don't project your entire future plus 10 minus 10. Like, and, and that was a huge help that really unlocked it for me. It's such a great lesson for anything we're doing in life. Even when you're Mm. trying to, when I'm trying to build a business and working with entrepreneurs and they're so excited that something worked, I'm like nervous because then when something doesn't work, the opposite's going to happen. Yes. I'm always saying, let's get off the roller coaster of this is amazing. This is terrible. Let's just be on some rolling hills. Like it is disappointing when it doesn't work and it's cool when it does work, but we don't want to be on that roller coaster. That is unhealthy. Yeah. I heard it once said by someone, I have no idea who it was, but it was like, it's never as good as it, as you think. And it's never as bad as it seems something like to that effect. It's like our mind pushes it to the extremes when in the reality, it's like somewhere in between. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, I know we're getting short on, Oh, sorry, Tim. Oh, Um, go ahead. Oh, thanks. I was just going to ask Jason before, before we sort of get into conclusion, um, in terms of just practical, uh, you know, maybe practical tips, like, do you believe that, do you believe it's too easy to access pornography? And maybe this isn't like a public policy question as much as it is for me, like a parenting question, even like it's become a societal norm to hand our kids, uh, you know, smartphones, computers in their pocket at, you know, 11, 12, uh, type of thing. Do you, I mean, what do you, what do you think society really should, should look like And parent, how, how parents specifically should, um, should look at this issue. Yeah. Well, I know what we've done, which is to put a lot of restrictions on our daughter's phone. Our son's too young to have a phone, but our daughter's phone is restricted in, in several different ways. One, just aggregate time. Like it turns on a certain time in the morning and it turns off a certain time at night. So 
we know that there's hours of the day where she just can't use it at all. Um, when it is turned on, we have restrictions on the amount of time she can spend on social media and other things like that so that she's not just getting lost in, in that stuff because it does suck you in. I mean, we're all human and those things are, are triggering all these um, and engineer, you know, very subconscious things are in our lizard too. brain. So, yeah. I'm sorry. And just, the, I'm sorry, just that they're engineered to, to do they're engineered, to that's trigger right. these hormones. Yeah. Because that's how those people make money. So, yeah. And, and then it's also restricted in terms of content. So, you know, we've gone in and set the content restrictions. So, you know, it limits adult websites. There are certain websites definitely can't go onto, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the approach that we've taken. The next thing that we are planning to do is just education. And because I've kind of given up on like a policy solution here. Maybe, I don't even know if it's the government's purview. I don't know, but I I don't even want to wade into that because that would just take too long. (laughs) It's like, we need to do something now. The next step is education. She's 13 years old. I'm reading a book right now called Girls and Sex by Peggy Orenstein. I don't know if you guys have read any of Peggy's stuff. It's very interesting. Um, I'm going to, my wife's going to read it next. Then we'll decide if our daughter should read it. But this will be the beginning of talk and, and pornography is a big topic in the book because it is so accessible and mostly boys are into it. Um, but you know, it's going to have an effect on her, um, because of the way it's affecting boys. And so, yes, I, I think it saddens me, I guess that it's, it's so pervasive, but I feel like we're, we as the culture are demanding it and that's why it's there. And so I'm more focused on like, why are we demanding it and what can we do to reduce the demand for it as opposed to banning it or blocking it or whatever you want to do from that side. Thank you. Yeah. That's good. Um, I also, again, I know a lot of my listeners um, are interested in life coaching or a lot of them are life coaches. Um, I want to make sure and have you just touch on, um, I think, I know you've, you've, um, benefited from all kinds of help. Um, mm. I, I, a lot of times I get this question, how do I know if I should seek out a coach or a therapist? And, and I don't expect you to answer that globally, but just on your experience, um, what has been the difference and what have been maybe the benefits of each or drawbacks of each. And, um, and also, I know people are wondering who this mysterious Melissa is. So if you yes. would mind speaking to those. Yes, she is mysterious. She she wants to stay mysterious. Um, I've had a lot of people asking for introductions, and she just isn't, she doesn't want that. Um, she has a very full practice, and she um, she's very happy that about what's happening, that like the things that she taught me are getting channeled through this book and can benefit more people. Um, but she's kind of content to let it, let it stay there. Um, to the question of, should I get a coach or therapist kind of depends on where you put the emphasis in that question. Is it, should I get a coach or therapist? To me, the answer is yes for everyone. Um, and we can come back to that. If you put the emphasis later, like, should I get a coach or therapist? Um, I think that's different, you know, and I think that, um, you mentioned earlier, it could be a coach, it could be a therapist, it could be a church, someone in your church community. Like 
if that person in your church community is sitting down and having a conversation with you about something or you're sharing something and being vulnerable, they're, they're playing that role, right? And so to the first one, should I have someone in my life that I can talk to openly, that's not going to judge me, that's going to love me unconditionally and help me process whatever it is, the answer is yes, in my opinion. I think and everyone... You still, and you still do go to uh, Melissa. How long week, have you been? Every week. 10 years. How long now? 10 years. 10 years every week. Yes. And what... And I, I'll come back to that, actually. I'll talk okay. about why I feel right. like that's yeah. still the case. But so I do feel like everyone should have someone. And I don't think uh, someone they can talk to without judgment who loves them and is going to help them. And I don't think it's... Okay enough for that to be like a friend or a family member because friends and family members, they, they have a little bit of, a, of an agenda in that relationship. They want to stay your friend, you know, if it's a friend or they want to, you know, be a family. I don't know. They, they want to be close to you as a family member. Um, you really need someone who has no agenda on you and who who can tell it to you like it is, tell you the truth, be honest with you, be hard on you when you need it, call you out when you need it. And so, yes, I think it should be, whether it's a coach or a therapist or someone else, it really depends. They're, What's the difference in your experience? Yeah. My experience is, because I have talked to a few therapists, um, my experience is that the therapists tend to come from a much more clinical slash medical background. And so when we're talking, it's, I get the sense that they're trying to put it into a framework or a diagnosis. And then there's like certain ways to treat a certain diagnosis based on the data and the history. And it just starts to feel more like, uh, more rigid, I guess, in a way, um, as opposed to the coaching for me where, you know, at least in my case, my life coach, like she's not classically trained in any medical fields. She's not bound by any uh, laws or dictates or whatever. Like it's just the gloves are off and it's just two people trying to make sense of what's going on and who, who are willing to try lots of different things. It doesn't matter what the science says. We're going to try this or we're going to try that. And if it works for you, that's great. So that's been the difference for me. And more of a, a present and future focus, a little bit less past focus, would you say? Or not necessarily. You did dive into your past quite a bit. We did that. dive into my past a lot. Yeah, yeah. that's what I mean. That, that like some coaches, I think, will go there as well. And and therapists will also, you know, yeah. um, go into the future. I think I feel like a coach, you know, a coach, it's like a therapist might be, uh, in my experience, how do I understand this thing that's happening or, or what happened? Whereas the coach, the, the initial question might be something like, I'm not getting what I want out of life. I want different things out of life. How do I get those things? And yeah. so it also starts from a different place a little bit. And maybe Jason, as we, as we move toward wrap up here, oh, yeah. would you, well, oh, please I, I didn't say the 10 year thing. I just want to say, I have been working with the same life coach for 10 years. I think what's fascinating about that is that we are much different people than we were 10 years ago. She is a completely different person. She keeps growing and changing. Your coach? 
Yes, she is not the same person. And I think that's very important, whether it's a therapist, coach, person in the church, whoever, that person has to be climbing just as aggressively as any of their clients, because that's how they stay ahead. That's how you stay higher on the mountain or however you want to describe it. Really good point. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been beautiful. Yeah. And just to tack on to that, Jason, and, you know, potentially moving toward wrap up here. Yeah. Could you talk about where you find yourself now emotionally and, and spiritually and what you maybe see as your, your mission at this time in your life, given the journey that you've been through? Oh, great question. Um, so emotionally, the last, since the book came out, it's been an emotional roller coaster. I don't know that I appreciated how up and down it would be, but you know, I'm bearing all of these secrets, um, to everyone. <laughs> um, you know, I think moments where I felt like I had to be a certain kind of person, I had to have all the answers because people started coming to me with lots of questions. And I felt like I have to have this all figured out knowing inside that I don't, I am still very much on my journey. I am still learning and growing. And so I had to let go of those things. And so it's been a really interesting six months or so since the book came out. But I would say if I had to characterize the last several years, um, Jody mentioned earlier in the call masculinity, and we really haven't touched about on this, but I really have zeroed in on this as one of the core pieces of the story to the point now where the way I describe the book to people is on the surface, it's this flashy story of this guy who gets rich and goes off the rails into porn and sex. And then you know, recovers his marriage. And like, that's the surface level story. And it's a, it's a fun story and it's an interesting story. And a lot of people can benefit from that story. When you look one layer below that, it's a story of a boy being raised in a culture and a society that has perpetuated, maybe encouraged a kind of an immature model of masculinity. If I have money, cars, and women, I'll be happy. once I get those things, I'm entitled to do whatever I want, the sense of entitlement, sexual entitlement, entitlement for anything. Right. And, and then this boy, now he's 30, 35 years old. He's still a boy. Parts of him are still very much a boy inside. Now he's more dangerous because he's got all these tools and power and he starts bumping up against the limitations of this boy consciousness. It is not working anymore. And he has, he realizes he has to change and he doesn't understand this at the time, but change means he has to transition from boy consciousness into mature adult male consciousness. And that is what starts to happen towards the end of the book. And that, you know, the book ends in 2015 and after a few years of like reconstruction with Anne Marie and trust building and all those things, I had a son we, you know, we had a son and this masculinity thing really hit me like a ton of bricks. And that's really been my focus now. It's like, how can I be a more mature man? What does it mean to be a conscious man in society, being in service to others and stuff like that? So that's my job now. My job is to be in service. Writing this book was the first way to be in service. Being on this podcast I feel like I'm just trying to help. You know, I'm my agenda here is if people can learn from what I went through, then 
I hope they do. And, you know, it's also, there's a love story in there too with Anne Marie and I. And I think that story helps a lot of couples because it's an example of you can go through these things and stay together. You don't have to. And in fact, by forcing yourself to say, I understand some relationships maybe shouldn't stay together. And that's like, you can't treat, it's, it's not a global rule. But by staying together, it forced us to do deeper work than we would have done if we would have separated. And that's an, also an interesting part. So there's a lot of different layers. I feel like I'm talking a lot, but uh, there's a lot of layers. Yeah, I agree. We could do three more episodes and cover. Let's, let's do another one. Topics. <laughs> okay. I'm yeah. in. So any, any other questions, Tim, that we haven't covered? I don't think so from my end. I'm just super appreciative, Jason. I mean, when we talk about vulnerability, it does not get more vulnerable than living the story that you lived mm. and then writing it in a book and publishing it. So you're you're a model when it comes to that. And thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Appreciate I would echo that. that. And um, I would say that we just have nothing but love and best wishes to you and your family. And that if Anne-Marie ever decides she's up for it, I'd love to have her come on the podcast. And, yeah. Um, anyway... Thank you. Thank you very much. No, it's my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks so much for listening. And a big thanks to Jason for coming on and to Jody Moore from Better Than Happy for co-releasing this episode with us. If you'd like to find Jason's book, Silicon Valley Porn Star, it's now available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and it really helps us to get the word out about Faith Matters. We appreciate the support. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.